Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Bruce Pierce, and welcome to the next episode of my podcast, Women's Healthcare with Dr. Bruce Pierce. Today, I'm on location in Princeton, New Jersey, and I'm at the office of Princeton Urogynecology. And my special guest today is the director of Princeton Urogynecology and the chairperson of the OBGYN department at Penn Medicine Princeton Health Hospital. Please welcome Dr. Heather Van Rout. Thank you for having me, Dr. Pierce. Hi, Dr. Van Rout. Can I call you Heather? Please do. For the you know sake of the you know because we're friends, right? We're you know we're Absolutely. colleagues and friends for many years. So, so Heather, I think I don't know if you heard my last podcast, but it was with a uh, person named Michelle Della Rosa, who I'm I know you know well, and she's a pelvic floor physical therapist and I guess we're I guess this is a maybe a continuation of a discussion about women's pelvic floor how's that sound to you that sounds right up my alley that's exactly <laughs> what, what I was looking for good so you're the right person to talk to about this is that correct absolutely and I know you are so Heather Dr. Van Ralph so I guess briefly explain what a, what a focus on pelvic floor means, because I did see that on your website. Yeah, so pelvic floor disorders are a wide array of conditions that affect women, and they are just so common um, that many people think they're normal parts of aging, uh, but they can really disrupt your quality of life, uh, your activities, uh, your well-being. So they're worth addressing and treating, and they're very good treatment options now for a wide array of these problems. So they extend from anywhere from bladder control, urgency, frequency, incontinence, difficulty emptying your bladder, to prolapse, which is support of the pelvic organs, where you can get a dropped bladder, dropped uterus, rectocele, um, pelvic pain conditions that affect our patients, whether it's in the bladder or overall pelvis, and then bowel control issues. Now, I have a question. You're a urogynecologist and maybe not everybody's heard of a urogynecologist what is that so, i know what it is but you tell <laughs> tell everybody yeah a urogynecologist is, either comes from a background of urology or OBGYN, and then does subspecialty training in pelvic floor disorders so those those things i mentioned really a surgical subspecialty but there's a lot of innovation in medicine um, and office-based treatments as well so we go for additional board certification just in pelvic floor um, conditions. That's great. So let's talk about the bladder, shall we? Sure. Let's start. Let's start at the bladder. Um, so tell me, uh, I guess, what's what do you see the most as the uh, of maybe one of the more common complaints you have about bladder control. Let's yeah, say. so urinary incontinence is probably our number one condition that affects women. And you know, they just actually came out with a study looking at prevalence. And, and every time I read a study, they update the numbers and they seem to be a little bit higher each time. And I think it's, again, because we've normalized a lot of these conditions um, so that people don't see them as actual problems. But the latest numbers show that about 60, 62% of all women suffer from urinary incontinence um, sometime in the last year. And that, that equates to 78 million women in the United States. So very, very common conditions. Being an OBGYN, see uh, these women in the office, and it's extremely common. And I think if you're not seeing it, maybe, maybe you just have to ask because exactly. sometimes it's, uh, you know, patients are embarrassed and they don't want to mention it. Um, yeah. You know. 
I mean, I, when I was a resident, uh, I got challenged by my urogynecologist that I was rotating with to just ask all the patients that came in after having babies or for their routine GYN care if they had any bladder control issues or look for prolapse or bowel control issues. And I was floored uh, because I expected, you know, my young patients. You're pelvic floored. Yeah, I was pelvic floored. <laughs> that is nice. I like how you did that. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I expected I'd see, you know, maybe some people, but it was the same exact numbers. The incidence in my, even my young, healthy patients, I thought, well, no, these are conditions that affect, you know, grandmas, you know, this is right. an 80 something plus condition, but no, it, it, it really doesn't uh, take any prisoners. It starts at a young age on. Yeah, exactly. And especially after childbirth. Number one risk factor. Right. Not that we tell people not to have children, of course, <laughs> no. but you know, um, and also I guess then you see maybe another peak around menopause. You got it. Yeah, those. Uh, that's what I. It. That's what I see too. So, um, I know from my uh, podcast statistics that we have, uh, I think, a large uh, contingent of women near menopause or after menopause or during menopause. And so, let's talk about that. Um, why do I guess I guess having children is a is a more obvious, but why do women around menopause have more problems with incontinence? Yeah, so um, these problems do just increase with aging. So part of it is just natural aging of the tissues. The tissues lose a bit of their support. The nerves may not be as uh, reliable or fast in their signaling as they were in our youth. So that's part of it. But the other big part about menopause is estrogen really supports a lot of the tissue in the pelvis. And as we get decreased estrogen levels, we start to see these tissues really change um, and atrophy. Uh, right, exactly. So let's say I'm a patient. Um, actually, I'm, I'm around 55 <laughs> I'm years old and I'm starting to leak and I come into your office. Uh, what, what am I to expect? Well, first we just do some intake questions and we really want to figure out, well, what's causing this leaking? And there's several different versions of incontinence, but the, the top two we see are what we call urgent continence, where somebody has to go to the bathroom, they just can't quite make it in time, or stress incontinence, which is when you leak with a cough, sneeze, or exercise. So we want to figure out which one of those is it, or is it a combination? It's not uncommon to see both. So, uh, okay, so you're... So that's step one. Step one. That, go ahead. <laughs> please continue. <laughs> step two is then we're going to look at your anatomy. So we'll have a comprehensive urogynecology exam, which sounds intimidating sometimes but it's really a lot like a gynecology exam we do check to see how people empty their bladder so we we do a voiding profile see how people empty we'll do an ultrasound of the bladder to make sure you empty completely um, we'll check to look for leaking and we'll do a regular um, almost like a gynecology exam to look for support anatomical defects and measure the muscles as well okay that's step two that's step two now okay so you've done all that <laughs> What's step three? <laughs> step three is a lot of education. So we, we do a lot of talking in this office um, to make sure people understand what their conditions are and what are the options for taking care of things. And whether it's a very conservative approach, which is where we really rely heavily on people like Michelle De La Rose, our, our physical therapy con, um, colleagues, to try to tone up the pelvic floor, use our natural bodies to overcome, whether it's diet changes, um, you know, a good example would be somebody who drinks five Diet Cokes a day and has problems leaking on the way to the bathroom. We might start there. Um, and then I, I have about four. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just under the, under the line. You're at risk, Bruce. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then we'll talk about, you know, more significant interventions, which might be medication, other office procedures, or even surgeries if needed. 
All right, tell me about surgery. Because well, I'm into the surgery, so <laughs> tell me so about the surgery. For stress incontinence, that's that's a big surgical procedure because it's really an anatomic problem. So if we can't compensate with just muscle strength, um, then we can replace the ligament that supports the urethra. So it's some procedure called a sling procedure, and it's outpatient surgery. Um, so we do that under IV sedation, place a small support underneath the urethra, so now the urethra has a backstop when you cough, sneeze, run, jump. And the cure rates are really high. It's about a 90% cure rate for a 15-minute procedure. Um, so we get a good trade-off there. Fabulous. What if, I guess, I guess it depends on severity. What if it's more severe a case? So um, more severe cases, sometimes we need a combination of approaches. And when there's a couple of reasons why it could be more severe. One is there might be prolapse as well. So sometimes you have a dropped bladder that needs to be lifted back into position or a dropped uterus that's literally sitting on the bladder. That makes it much more difficult um, to treat on its own. So we may need to do additional surgery, sometimes vaginally, sometimes robotic, depending on the extent of the defect, in order to lift the organs back in the right position. And then we'd also do that sling procedure at the same time. This is a great segue because my next question was about, what we, I guess, what we call pelvic organ prolapse, which is probably another common complaint you see. Who, what is pelvic or, organ prolapse and who gets it? Yeah, so prolapse is a really another really common condition um, that affects about 40% of women, um, and it's basically a hernia. You know, so just like you can get a hernia in your abdominal wall, you can get a hernia into the vagina. And there's really three sides to the vagina. There's the front part that holds up the bladder, the top part that holds up the uterus, and the back part that holds the rectum in the right position. So you can get a hernia in one, two, or all three of those spots, and it heads to where gravity takes it. There's a bulge physically outside of the vagina when this happens. How do you get it? Well, you know, we're going to blame kids again. Oh, it's one of the num. I know, kids. I know. They ask, they take a lot. <laughs> um, so that's the bit number one risk factor. And then again, we have menopause for that aging of mm -hmm. tissue. And then often prolapse happens to my active people. You know, people that have lived lives of, of gardening, of running, of lifting, of bending, straining. It's that repetitive strain on the body. Same things that cause abdominal hernias can really affect um, the pelvic floor support as well. Is there something you could do to prevent it? Is, is there you know, um, we don't have foolproof prevention yet, but that's really where we look towards physical therapy, um, especially pre-prolapse conditions. So we'd really love to be a little more preventative in our strategies after deliveries. Um, so that's one of the, the options that we're offering at Princeton, having that pelvic wellness center, having surrounding physical therapists, centers, um, all engaged in postpartum rehab. And if you think about it, any other muscle strain that you would have on a similar level, whether it's a sports injury or um, a, you know, an injury around the house, you, you would consider some kind of physical therapy afterwards to get those muscles back. So with deliveries, we're hoping that by being a little more preventative, we'll be able to counteract that. Yes, and I was also part of uh, my discussion with uh, Michelle De La Rosa was about this, you know, multimodal approach, uh, you know, you know, not isolating one body part and trying to... You got it, yeah. you know, and some, sometimes we've even worked with some of the local fitness, um, you know, popular boot camps or other centers that will offer programs, and they've contacted us sometimes per patient's request because the way that forces are then being submitted to the pelvis is, is putting them at a higher risk. So what can they do as, you know, just fitness instructors to try to combat exercises for women that may be a little safer. What do you tell the patient who's, unfortunately, if they're 
beyond that approach and you know we've seen women whose uteruses are basically falling out and and clearly that's beyond the physical therapy and t tell me what you would do in that case yeah so there once the once there's a physical bulge coming beyond the opening it's really hard to rehab that with physical therapy um, just like an advanced hernia in the abdomen, there's there's not a lot of conservative management options that you could do on your own. But there are a couple options to fix it. And one of the smaller options is something called a pessary. And if you haven't heard of that, it's a device that goes inside the vagina, just placed in the office. This is a non-surgical thing to do. Um, and it gives support to the organs just by friction, kind of like a brace. Let's say they fail the pessary or their... They really don't want a pessary and because maybe they're still sexually active or they want to be sexually active. Yeah. Then what's the next step? Yeah, pessaries are definitely not for everybody. They require an awful lot of maintenance. They could be uncomfortable. Um, and then you're right. Some people just say, no, that's not for me. I'd rather have this fixed. I want something a little more definitive. So next step is surgery. Um, and there's different approaches to surgery. It depends where the prolapse is affecting the most. Um, that often helps us decide what the best kind of surgery would be. And how do you gauge what the best surgery would be? Just the level of prolapse or where it is? A little bit of both. So, you know, the larger the prolapse, the more it involves the very top of the vagina or the uterus, uh, we tend to lean towards a robotic surgery. Ooh, okay. You piqued I, my interest. I, I know. That's one of your favorite approaches. <laughs> that's my favorite. <laughs> Tell me about the robotic uh, surgery for Yeah, for so probably the most common one is something called a sacrocolpopexy, and that's suspending the vaginal walls up to a ligament on the tailbone, sort of reaching around the vagina to recreate the ligaments and lift everything back up into the right position, all through robotic incisions, which you know, they're those tiny incisions in the abdomen to allow us to access these deeper organs. So do you need to remove the uterus uh, with this? Is, is a hysterectomy involved in this surgery? For a, for the sacral colpopexy it is, or a partial hysterectomy is, um, there are some other approaches that we can avoid doing a hysterectomy if that's in a patient's desire. Um, but the sacral colpopexy one, yeah, it does. All right. The big question. <laughs> what about mesh? Tell me about mesh. Because I, you know, I, because before you see these patients, I think I see these patients that I send them right to you. And, and, but of course they want to know, well, what, what's she going to say? Which is, so I kind of, you know, I kind of know the deal a little bit. So then their eyes light up. Is she going to use mesh? Tell me, <laughs> why, why am I getting that response, Dr. Sure, that's, that is a huge controversy these days. Um, and it really stems from something called transvaginal mesh, which is no longer on the market. Um, so I think that gave mesh a bad name. But we still do use meshes all the time for reconstructive surgery, for either prolapse surgery or for incontinence surgery. Um, and the difference between the ones that were removed from the market and the ones we currently use is really how they're placed and the kind of materials they are. So nowadays, they're very lightweight, um, very wide-knit materials so that your body uses it as a scaffolding to just reinforce its own natural tissue, as opposed to a heavy sheet of material that your body could see as a foreign body and have more of an adverse reaction to. These ones are more invisible to your body. You heal through it, you give better support. When we do that, we get cure rates that are now closer to a 90% cure rate long-term compared to just a stitch repair 
where we put the natural tissue back together without a mesh. And I think also, you know, complicating the mesh issue was maybe not everybody who was putting in the mesh was maybe properly trained uh, as you are. And maybe, you know, if it was improperly placed, that could cause complications. Yeah, that's a great point. These transvaginal meshes where the controversy was around, they came out before our field was board certified. Um, So there were an awful lot of folks that went for a weekend course and became mesh implanters instead of a fellowship training. And unfortunately, putting a foreign body in a really delicate area of of your body could lead to complications. So I think I would... And I'm sure you would agree if anybody's out there listening and, and of course not in our area and needs uh, this cert, this type of surgery and possibly mesh, I would say make sure you uh, do your research, make sure the surgeon putting it in is fellowship trained uh, and has the proper credentials. Yeah. Do you agree? Precisely. <laughs> My last topic I wanted to discuss with you is something called vulvodynia. What is vulvodynia? So vulvodynia is a condition where you have pain at the vulva or the vaginal opening. How would, how does it present? It just all of a, like you just all of a sudden have pain, you wake up with it or is or is or is it uh, you know, a progressive or chronic condition? Yeah, it seems to be progressive in a lot of people. Um, though occasionally I'll have people that say it just started one day, but you, usually it's something that starts a little slower and becomes progressively bothersome. You know, one of the main symptoms is pain with intercourse. So they may at first not notice it at all, just sitting, walking, doing day-to-day activities, but they'll notice that intercourse is becoming more just uncomfortable in a certain area right at the vaginal opening. But it can progress to be um, a daily pain even without intercourse or you know, directly manipulating that tissue. Yeah, so I, I see these patients in the office too and usually what you uh how it's presenting is like uh they just think they have uh, either a uti or a vaginitis and it's just that but then nothing seems to work that's <laughs> and right it, and it progresses and the 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 tests we do for infections are all negative and then they get like multiple rounds of antibiotics etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah, unfortunately, all those tricks are usually taken up by the time they come here. Yeah, they, they've, exactly. they've already tried all the things that I thought might work, and um, and, and now we're on to this, this condition. So, so what do you do with the patient? Let's say they present, they're referred from Dr. Pierce uh, for to treat their what he suspects is their vulvodynia. What's what's that workup look like? Well, if they were referred by Dr. Pierce, they had a thorough workup of already, course. ruling out any infectious etiology or other <laughs> concerns. But uh, I would I would still you know just take a peek at those results just to make sure we didn't miss anything. Um, and and then there's a oh, number. So you don't of, trust me, no. Well, no, no, no. I just, I just want to get in for the record. You know, <laughs> okay, that's all. Just a documentation. It's just documentation thing, you know. Okay, I'm, I feel better now. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's a number of ways to sort of get that pain to be suppressed. Um, there are really nerve endings that are uh, inappropriately firing. So how do we calm those down? Well, there are um, multimodal approaches that we use. So we do look at physical therapy to try to see if physical manipulation of the tissue can be helpful. Sometimes there's a deeper trigger point that can be identified and uh, really getting a muscle relaxed can help with the vulvodynia that's provoked otherwise. A lot of times we use topical treatments, um, sometimes through a compounding pharmacy to give different pain relief or reduce nerve ending irritation with a topical compounds. 
Other times we'll do injection therapy. So we'll do trigger point injections into the tissue to try to get underneath the skin, so to speak, to try to treat it. Sometimes we use um, dilators, kind of home therapy to stretch the tissue. And other times we'll also use an oral medications um, to calm down, again, this kind of pain reflex, can't get those nerves that are overactive uh, to become less so. Tell me about trigger these trigger point injections. How do you know where the trigger points are and uh, how is that done? Yeah, everybody's really different on this front, so I, I can't say vulvodynia is exactly the same in every single patient. Um, sometimes there are really obvious trigger points. Um, so what we'll do is we'll touch the tissue with a Q-tip, map out where we see um, a nerve reflex, and you, you can actually see it. It's called blushing. So if you touch the tissue, it, it literally blushes back at you. And in some people, you'll see, oh, there's just two or three spots that I, I really want to focus on. Other people, it's very widespread, and it would be hard to say a trigger point here or there would help. We'll go to the most common areas in those patients as opposed to targeted take home points all right this is i, I just started the brand new so now we do we're, we're doing take home <laughs> all right so tell me okay this is where i i explain back to you what you just told me and let me see it and you see if i got it right and okay. how, and how i got it not right uh, so all right take home points so if you're experiencing um bladder control or bowel control issues voiding difficulties, maybe recurrent urinary tract infections. Maybe I should ask my generalist or urologist if I should maybe see, and you're, you're a female or a owner of a vulva, and <laughs> maybe I should see a urogynecologist. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think a lot of the referring physicians in this area are at least accustomed to having a urogynecologist around, but that's not true everywhere. So I think... Um, you know, it might not come on the forefront of the referring doctors to ask for urogynecologists, but the more patients are aware, I think it'll help. Where could they find them? I guess go online and search sure. in their there's, area for urogynecologists. That's right. There's, a board-certified urogynecologist. Right. You can yeah. actually, there is a, there's a lot of physician finders on different hospitals, you know, whatever your local hospital would have, either urogynecology or female pelvic floor, um, reconstructive surgeons. It's either under one of those two categories. Um, and then there's a national website, the American Urogyne Society, that has a physician finder as well. Excellent. All right. And uh, take home number two is if uh, I guess you're noticing a bulge in the vaginal area or you think things are dropping, also a good maybe time to, if you've already seen your regular gynecologist, of course, you, that's what I recommend. Go first to your regular gynecologist. And then they might refer to a urogynecologist. Yeah, and I, I would also add, we do have a handful of patients every year that go to the emergency room for a prolapse because they're worried, you know, something's falling oh, out sure. or there's a tumor or something that wasn't there yesterday. Right. Um, so any bulge from the vagina, go see your gynecologist uh, first. Absolutely. <laughs> and lastly, my third take-home point, if you, I guess if anybody's out there experiencing a chronic vaginal pain concern like painful sex or uh, recurrent vaginal infections with no known cause um, or recurrent uh, episodes of uh, vaginal pain with no known cause. Maybe also they may want to get worked up for vulvodynia. That's a good idea. And, you know, unfortunately, some of these patients end up going from doctor to doctor to doctor without going to a specialist. So they go to multiple gynecologists to get, you know, 
kind of a second opinion, but it's the same workup over and over. And that gynecologist doesn't have the history of, wait a minute, this has been going on um, for you know a whole year uh, or something. So I, I think, yeah, taking, taking it to a specialty level is going to be very, very helpful and fast track their care better. I, I agree. And I see, I see these patients too. They've, they've gone to the ER, they've gone to the urgent care center, mm-hmm. they've gone to multiple doctors. They took their sister's medication. Exactly <laughs> right. And nothing's working. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, not saying everybody has it, but it's certainly uh, something to look at. Yeah. All right, Dr. Van Ralt, loving your office here at Princeton Urogynecology <laughs> in uh, Princeton near Plainsboro, New Jersey. And uh, thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you for coming today. All right. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for my next episode. It'll be coming up shortly. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.